U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and my ex over there. Hey, Stephen. Ahoy there, Captain. How you doing, listeners? So, we are going to continue with the Battles of 1812. We have a little bit of the Atlantic left, and then we're going to go right off to the East Coast. Maybe this episode, maybe next episode. We'll see. Ready to get underway? Let's cast off. All right, so first up for today, we have the sinking of the HMS Avon. Not the company Avon, but the ship Avon. <laughs> when the British lost untold cosmetic products. Yes. <laughs> this was a battle fought between the HMS Avon and the USS Wasp. This happened September 1st of 1814. So the Wasp has spent seven weeks in France making repairs after a earlier battle between them and the HMS Reindeer. They needed to replace casualties from crews of American privateers in that port. The Wasp got underway August 27th and almost immediately got in battle. So September 1st, a convoy of 10 merchant ships, which was escorted by the HMS Armada, encountered the Wasp. The Wasp made a number of attacks and was able to capture one of the ships, which was loaded with iron, brass, and some arms. Now, later on the day, as night was coming, Master Commandant Johnson Blakely, who was commanding the Wasp, spotted four unknown sails and decided to go for the nearest one. So this unknown sail was actually the cruiser class brig sloop HMS Avon. She had 32 pound carronades and two six pound long guns. The Wasp, she carried 22 32 pound carronades and two 12-pound chase guns with a 12-pound boat carronade, which they removed from the reindeer. Yeah, this doesn't seem like it'll be much of a contest. So the Wasp approached the Avon's quarter. The two vessels exchanged hails. The Americans demanded that the British vessel heave to, and shots from the bow and stern chase guns. Blakely... Well, he eventually drew up alongside the Avon, deliberately coming to the leeward position to prevent the Avon from escaping downwind. Now, at this time, it was fully dark. The wind was good, and the sea was pretty rough. But the American gunners, of course, were very accurate. After about half an hour, the Avon had been pretty much demasted. One-third of her crew were casualties, and her guns were silenced. Many of the broadside carronades had been dismounted because of this exchange of gunfire. Now, the American side, one sailor was struck by wadding from the British carronade. Four shots struck the hull of the wasp and... Only three American sailors were wounded. 
When you say he was struck by the wadding, I just want to make sure I'm hearing you right. We're talking the packing material. Yes, exactly. I mean, I guess it'd be hot. They missed with the cannonball, but not with the wadding. Here, let me shoot you with some cotton. It's a beanbag round. No, not even that. Let me shoot you with some cotton in the face. <laughs> oh, Captain, I've been struck. Please give me my purple heart. It more than likely was still burlap, but still, I mean, it's like cannonball, burlap. Which is more effective? Well, sir, I think the burlap would be very effective against these Americans. They're not even worth the iron for the cannon. Maybe that iron went into the hole because, I mean, there were four four holes in that hole. Yeah, that's that's a manageable amount of holes. Yeah. Unless all four was below the waterline, then you might be in some trouble. Yeah, then you need to call the bucket brigade. Uh, if the bilge pumps are okay, they might be fine. So th this this one was not really a contest. This was really the Avon just having bad luck being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, this was pretty much one-sided. I mean, it only lasted 45 minutes. So the Wasp decided to lower a boat to take possession of the Avon when they saw another vessel approaching, followed by two more. The Wasp took her boats back on pretty quickly and got underway downwind. The nearest pursuer was the British brig sloop HMS Castilian. They got close enough to fire a broadside, but it was inaccurate and went over the Wasp's quarter. And then they broke off because the Avon was making a lot of distress signals. <laughs> Guys, help, please. Yes, we want to get those Americans too, but we really could use a hand here. Yeah, they ended up taking off the entire crew of the Avon. And pretty much right after they got the last man off, she sunk. And uh, do we have information on that inevitable court-martial? Well, we know that the Wasp continued to cruise west, and then on the 21st, which was 21 days later, they met with a neutral Swedish merchant vessel, which had two officers from the Essex on board, which, you know, they had been captured previously off of Chile. Mm -hmm. So some of the officers from different ships that they had taken were put aboard the Swedish ship. And then right after this, the Wasp was never seen again. They think they were lost in a storm. So once these prisoners were released, they brought news of this really one-sided battle to Britain. The British said, you know what? We need larger, better armed sloops and brigs because of this. But what they didn't take into account was the effective gunnery of the Americans. You can have bigger ships, but that just makes a bigger target for these very effective gunners. You can pour all the time and money and resources into making better equipment, but that can't make up for better draining. Exactly. Because remember, volunteer Navy versus indentured Navy. All right, Mr. Higgins, welcome to His Majesty's Royal Navy. Well, I've never been on a boat before, sir. Ah, don't worry, you'll learn on the job. So the next one is 
when the USS president was captured. So as you know, the British blockaded the American coast. Yep. Or at least attempted to. So in 1813, Decanter tried to break out of New York in the United States and the USS Macedonian. But the British squadron drove him back into New London, Connecticut. So he decided to lighten both of these frigates enough to be able to tow them upriver to be safe from these British expeditions. So they were effectively hulked and dematerialized. I didn't know uh, overall ship weight mattered. I thought as long as it was relatively, you know, streamlined for the water and you had a decent wind, you could move. Well, they were trying to bring them up rivers. Oh, okay. And, you know, these boats, when they have a lot of weight on them, sat low in the water. Yeah, c compared to the open ocean, the lower you're sitting in a river, the more likely you're hit a, a sandbar or, you know, a sudden rise in the water, in the uh, bottom level. Okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah, when uh, river travel was done mostly by flat-bottom boats. These were not flat-bottom boats. You'd enter the river and immediately be catch the keel on the bottom. So, the next year, Decanter tried to break out again in the United States, but turned back because he was afraid that pro-British local civilians were burning lights to alert the blockaders that he was on the way. Oh no, one if by land and two if by sea has turned against us. You know what these guys were called? Traitors? They were actually called the Blue Light Federalists. That sounds like a sports team. I'm not going to lie. The Blue Light Federalists versus the USS United States. Let's get into the action. <laughs> I mean, US Yankees works. So Decanter and the crew of the United States were then transferred to President which had just been retrofitted in New York. So on the 13th of December in 1814, the president and some smaller warships, which included the Peacock Hornet and the Tom Bowline, were in New York, preparing to break out past the British blockade to go up against British merchant shipping. The squadron blocking New York consisted of the Majestic, the Andy Moyne, Honomi, and Tendos. And, and the fleet commander was Commodore John Hayes, who was on the Majestic. So on January 13th, a month later, a blizzard came up from the Northwest, which blew the British ships off of their station that they were at they were blown southeast so decanter was like hey here's our chance we're gonna take the president and we're gonna get the heck out of here i mean what what's a little wintertime sailing well i mean the british ships were in disarray because of this this blizzard so under cover of blizzard let's get the heck out of here oh no no like tactically it makes sense i'm just like you know from wisconsin if a blizzard is bad on the road, I can only imagine how bad it would be on the seas. Well, you don't have to worry about the road icing up. I, no, I feel like that's a pretty valid concern, considering the entire road can ice up. 
Oh, wait, no, that's only a problem in the Arctic Circle. Salt water. Well, no, it can, but it's mostly just in the harbors and things to that nature. Oh, where it's relatively still. Right. So, as you can imagine, decanter, disaster struck immediately. So he ordered his harbor pilots to anchor boats to mark the safe passage across the bar at the mouth of the harbor. But the harbor pilots didn't do it so well. President actually ended up grounding on the bar and remained stuck there for about two hours. So as you can imagine, they got the heck pounded out of them from the wind and heavy sea. So by the time they finally worked the frigate free, she was pretty much heavily damaged. And a lot of copper had been stripped away from the hull. The masts were twisted and some of them sprung, which is long cracks being developed in them. The hull was hogged, which means the bow and stern were sagging. And the hull was also twisted. But on a bright note, the keel was fine. I mean, you do want that in good shape. But I am curious, why is it a big deal that copper is coming off the hull? That's protection. Oh, okay. So it's like a copper band that helps reinforce it for combat? Yeah. Okay. Now, the smaller warships that were in the harbor with her, they got out. But it was impossible for Decanter to turn around and go back to port because of how hard the gale was blowing. He was forced to go out to sea. So he decided to go east, trying to keep as close to the shore of Long Island before heading southeast. And this is even before the battle. So he got roughed up a huge amount before even getting into battle. This would be like a stock car racer deciding to take their car on the road before a race and then just, you know, hit a deer, end up in the ditch and like, "Ah, but I do have to get there. Yeah, he's going to be at a huge disadvantage. So the gale abates, as gales tend to do when they lose their strength. So the British regroups and they take a look over the harbor and go, Uh, the Americans are gone. They were right there. What the heck happened? So Hayes leaves the Tenedos to watch the Sandy Hook Passage, and they go north to watch the Long Island Passage instead of heading back to the harbor entrance. So when the sun comes up on the 14th, they see the president. So Decanter immediately turns downwind trying to gain speed to outrun them. So he decides to also lighten the ship by throwing stores overboard and his extra boats overboard and, you know, throwing the drinking water overboard. We've seen this before. But, of course, the damage to his boat that he's already received. This was pretty much fatal to them because it slowed them down so much that even lightening this boat didn't do much. Mm-hmm. So Majestic fires some shots 
trying to figure out the distance between the president and them. And of course, these fall short, so obviously they're too far away. So Ponomi overtakes her to lead the pursuit. And then Tendidos unexpectedly appears south of them. And then, and so Hayes sent them to investigate. So the afternoon comes on. The wind eases to pretty much a breeze. And the Endymion under Captain Henry Hope overtakes Majestic and overhauled the president. So up until this point, it was just a race to see who could get to them first. For victory and glory. So, late afternoon, Endymion and President started exchanging fire with their bow and stern chase cannons. By nightfall, the Endymion had closed to the President's quarter, where Deganter could not bring any of his guns to bear on them. Endymion was a very fast ship, and her captain fired a broadside at the President's quarter before turning again to regain his position and keep chasing them. So it was pretty much a yaw over, fire, yaw back. So Decanter had drifted too close to Long Island, the shore of Long Island. Okay. So he wasn't able to steer northwards to put the Edimon astern of him. So Edimon did the yaw, fire, yaw, chase, yaw, fire, yaw, chase two more times, which caused a considerable loss for the president. He suddenly turned to starboard to cross Edimon's bow. He mustered his boarding parties just in case he was able to surprise the British with this maneuver. But Edimon had anticipated this and turned to starboard as well. So the two ships are now heading south, just exchanging broadsides. And one of them clearly at a massive disadvantage. Yes. So DeGanter was looking at the situation. And he was like, I don't have time to just keep firing broadsides to make this guy surrender. Because right over there are three more British ships coming right at us. So he changed his aiming of his cannons to the rigging, trying to disable her rigging. So he loaded chain shot and dismantling shot, which is bars of iron that are linked together with a ring. While the British gunners were still trying to hold the hull of the president. But the shooting was of poor standards on both sides. Decanter says it's because the president's powder was defective. Or it could be just that he had a really bad day. I think it's that one. I was going to I'm going to chalk it up to crew exhaustion between, you know, weathering a gale and uh, an actual blizzard on the sea in the worst possible conditions you could. They probably have not had much sleep in the past 24 hours. And they were pursued almost, what, within a couple hours of getting out of the blizzard? Yeah, they were pretty much pursued right as that blizzard went down. Yeah, so between the stress of being in a combat situation and then, you know, only now, after a full day almost of all this, are you beginning to get to consistent firing? Yeah, you're, you're probably not going to be performing at your best. No. So around, so just before 2000, 
president struck her colors. Now, this is also at night. So how do you strike your colors at night? You, you get everybody on deck with a candle and you, you know, wave it around? Actually, you're not far off. You'll hoist a light into your rigging to signify surrender. Huh. So Eddie Moyne heaves to and starts repairing her rigging. Captain Hope was not able to take immediate possession of the president because he had no boats available. So Decanter sees Eddie Moyne heave to and decides, well, I'm getting the heck out of here. I surrendered? Rules of combat say he should be taking possession of my ship. He's refusing to do so. I'm taking that as an out. So half an hour later, he starts sailing downwind. So Edimon completes her repairs a half hour after that. So between 2030 and 2100, Panomi and Tenados were actually still closing in on these two ships. And by the time Edimon got underway again, Pomoni had caught up to the president and fired two broadsides, which Decanter once again raises the lantern, indicating surrender. So during the entire fight, the president had 24 KIAs, which included three lieutenants. Oh, no. Yeah, that's... You need your officers. Her wounded amounted to 55, which actually included Decanter. He got a splinter. And uh, what, what was the total crew complement of the president? So the president had a crew of 447. Oh. The British lost 11 KIA and 14 were wounded. And this was all aboard the Edimon. Now, both the Edimon and president sailed to Bermuda. And, of course, they... Came across a storm on the way over there. <laughs> and they were both demasted. This ship just has horrible luck in this war. But they both made it to safety. And then, of course, official notification of the end of the war came soon afterwards. So the British took the president briefly into the Royal Navy and renamed her the HMS President. I feel like there was a missed opportunity here to really rub salt in the wound and name it the HMS Monarch. They might have already had a Monarch in there. That That's fair. It, they did have a much more expansive navy than us. But then they decided in 1818, this thing was way too messed up. So they just broke her. Now, later, they build a fourth-rate frigate and decide to name her the HMS President. And they made her an exact copy of the American HMS president. So the press of the British, they noted the good conduct of both American and British captains and sailor. But they also caused some bad feelings because they claimed that Edimon had defeated the president in a straightforward stand-up fight. And as we know, that's not what this was. No, there, there were a lot of circumstances leading up to that fight. Right. So the Eddyman had 346 crew versus, as I 
told you before, the 447 of the president. The Edimon had a broadside of 664 pounds, while the president had a broadside of 828. So had the president been not damaged and in fighting shape, this battle would have gone much differently. Yeah, that it's feasible the president could have squared up and then made an opening in the ship's trying to pincer it and then made a run for it yeah this if she had not gotten completely ransacked in that gale if the eddyman had actually been able to defeat her without the gale damage then yeah the british press would have been accurate but no they weren't and that's why everybody was like oh those lying sobs <laughs> I mean, it's it's the newspaper. They, they got to elaborate and sugarcoat things in order to help sell papers. So the British, they held DeCanter and his crew prisoner in Bermuda for a little bit. And this is your favorite part. <laughs> the DeCanter court-martial. He was acquitted, and his crew were also acquitted in the surrendering of the president. Decanter was actually quickly appointed to command an American squadron after this in the Mediterranean to protect American merchant ships against Corsairs. And then, as we've covered earlier, he was wounded in a duel and died after of his injuries. So the tinier ships that actually made it out, Mm -hmm. they were able to reach their rendezvous and the Hornet sank the HMS Penguin, which we will be going over. And and two of the American ships mistook the British sloop of the line HMS Cornwallis for an East Indiaman. So the Hornet narrowly escapes by jettisoning all of her guns and most of her stores. And the Peacock captures several British merchant ships in the Indian Ocean until receiving confirmation that the war had ended. They didn't want word. They wanted confirmation. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. War's over, right, buddy? I'm, I'm going to take this cargo of yours and your crew for safekeeping then. You know, because if the war is over, where's your Navy then? Right. So that was the capture of the USS President. How you feeling? Uh, that, that was a roller coaster. Um... Uh, I, I never knew that, uh, ships could get so banged up in a blizzard. You know, I hear about how bad hurricanes can be, but you don't think, uh, winter storms, you know, well, I don't think about winter storms on the ocean. I think about them on the land. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, just watch out for them icebergs. (laughs) Yeah, just, just give them a wide berth. Unless you're the Titanic. Yes, then go in for a hug. So... How about the capture of the HMS Cyan? Yeah, let's hear about it. This was a battle between the HMS Cyan, the HMS Levant, and the USS Constitution on February 20th in 1815. So the third year. So the Cyan was a Royal Navy Bantier class six-rate post ship. And the Levant was a sixth-rate, flushed-decked ship. The Constitution was a frigate of 44 guns. 
Now, the British plan was to sail together so they could not be overwhelmed by larger ships like the aforesaid Constitution. So the Constitution was captained by Charles Stewart, who trained his crew well. So Always a good thing to do. Always a good thing to do. So the Constitution closed within broadside distance and battered the Cyan. Then they lowered their sails and came even with Levant and exchanged broadsides with her. Levant peeled off to port, tacked, and sailed at 180 degrees off the Cyan's course. So the Constitution puts on sail again and tacks to port to take Cyan under stern rake. And then both ships surrendered. Nice, quick, and clean. Yeah. Uh, all three ships were underway for the United States when they were sighted and chased by a British task force. And then Levant was recaptured and returned to British service. So once the Cyan and the Constitution returned to port, they find out that the war was over. <laughs> but the United States took the Cyan into United States Navy service and renamed her, can you guess? Blue. The USS Cyan. Oh, of course. Now, for this one, I actually have a after-action report by the captain of the Constitution, Mr. Starles Stewart. And we also have some journal extracts by the chaplain of the Constitution, a man named A.Y. Humphreys. Let's hear him. Yeah, I'm just going to read this verbatim. This is all in these guys' words. So it, we're going to start with the after-action report. Minutes of action between the U.S. Frigate Constitution and HMS ships Cyan and Levant, 20 February 1815. Commences with light breezes from the E, which is east, and cloudy weather. At one, discovered a sail two points to the larboard bow, hauled up and made sail in chase. At half past one, made the sail to be a ship's at three quarter past one, discovered another sail ahead. Made them out at 2 p.m. to be both ships standing close hauled, and their starboard tacks on board. At 4 p.m., the weathermost ship made signals and bore up for her consort. Then about 10 miles to the leeward, we bore up after her and set lower topmast, topgallant, and royal studding sails in chase. At half past, four carried away our main royal mast took in the sails and got another prepared. At 5 p.m. commenced firing on the chass from our larboard bow guns. Our shot falling short, ceased firing at half past five, finding it impossible to prevent their junction. Cleared ship for action. Then about four miles from the two ships, at forty minutes after five, they passed within hail of each other, and hauled by the wind on their starboard tacked, hauled up their courses, and prepared to receive us. At forty-five minutes past five, they made all sail close hauled by the wind, in hopes of getting to windward of us. At 55 minutes past five, finding themselves disappointed in their object, and we were closing with them fast, they shortened sail and formed on a line of wind, about half at cable's length from each other. At 6 p.m., 
having them under the command of our battery, hoisted our colors, which was answered by both ships hoisting English ensigns. At five minutes past six, ranged up on the starboard side of the sternmost ship, about 200 yards distant, and commenced action by broadsides, both ships returning fire with great spirit for about 12 minutes. Then the fire of the enemy began to slacken, and the great column of smoke collected under our lee induced us to cease our fire to ascern their positions and conditions. In about three minutes, the smoke cleared away. We found ourselves abreast of their headmost ship, the sternmost ship luffing up of our larboard quarter. We poured a broadside into the headmost ship and then braced aback our main and mizzen topsails and backed astern under the cover of smoke. Abreast the sternmost ship, when action was continued with spirit and considerable effect until 35 minutes past six, when the enemy's fire again slackened, and we discovered the headmost bearing filled our topmasts, shot ahead, and gave her two stern rakes. We then discovered the sternmost ship nearing also, wore ship immediately after her, and gave her a stern rake, she luffing too on our starboard bows and giving us her labored broadside. We ranged up on the larboard quarter within hail and was about to give her our starboard broadside when she struck her colors, fired a lee gun, and yielded. At twenty minutes past six, took possession of H.M. ship Cyan, Captain Gordon Falcon, mounting thirty-four guns at eight p.m., filled away her consort, which was still in sight to leeward. At half past eight, found her standing towards us with her starboard tacks close hauled with top gallant set and colors flying. At twenty minutes past eight, ranged close along to windward of her, on opposite tacks, and exchanged broadsides, wore immediately under their stern and raked her with a broadside. She then crowded all sail and endeavored to escape by running, hauled on board our tacks, let spanker and flying jib in chase, and half past nine commenced firing on her from our starboard bow chaser gave her several shot which cut her spars and rigging considerably. At 10 p.m., finding they could not escape, fired a gun, struck her colors, and yielded. We immediately took possession of H.M. Ship Levant, Honorable Captain George Douglas, mounting 21 guns. At 1 a.m., the damages of our rigging was repaired, sails and the ship in fighting condition. That is the after-action report. So that is what happened in his own words. I mean, that was pretty short, sweet, and to the point with every update. Now, is that something that he would be updating as it was occurring, or kind of like updating the log after everything happened, to the best of his recollection? This would be written after the battle, to the best of his memory. Okay. After action reports were always done, they are still always done, after hostilities are concluded. Some are more simple, and some are much more detailed. It just depends on who's writing it. It's record-keeping. Just uh, something to help uh, have a record of what occurred in mm-hmm. an officer's terms. Okay. And they said there was something from the chaplain as well? Yes, we do. We have a excerpt from the chaplain on board the Constitution, a Mr. A.Y. Humphreys. So... He described the same encounter throughout the night, standing to the northward and westward under short sail on the starboard tack, 
continuing on this tack without seeing anything until 1 hour 10 p.m. on Monday, when a sail was cried from the masthead as being on the weather bow, hauled up for her under all sail. Shortly after, another sail was described on the lee bow and word from aloft that the ship to windward had bore up for us. As we were now in the direct tact for craft abound from the Mediterranean to Mariac, felt assured that none but our men of war would maneuver in this way, and were not mistaken. At 2.30 p.m., the ship standing for us displayed signals which were not being answered. She squared away to the westward to join her consort, setting all studding sails and making a great display of bunting, which she enforced with a number of guns, set every rag in chase, the wind rather lulling. At a few minutes before three, commenced firing from the forward guns on gun deck. The shot falling short ceased firing. At 3.15, opened again from the forward guns, the shot just reaching. At 3.45, carried away from the main royal mast, which enabled the chase to distance our fire. Set carpenters to work to make a new royal mast, which they completed about five. At 5.30, the breeze freshening a little. The ship to leeward tacking to the southward under all sail. At 6, the weather ship passed under the stern of the other and spoke with her, took in light sails, and both of them hauled up their mainsails and hauled two on the starboard tacked in line. At 6.10, ranged ahead of the sternmost, which we found to be a frigate-built ship, bringing her on the quarter, with her concert on the bow, distant about 200 yards, and opened our broadsides, which was returned with great quickness and spirit and some degree of precision continued exchanging broadsides until the whole were enveloped in smoke upon the clearing of way of which perceived we had got abreast of the headmost ship, manned both sides in case it should be necessary to wear a ship, and backed the main and mizzen topsails and dropped into our first station, the ship on the bow backing her topsails also, broke the men off from their starboard battery and renewed the action from the larboard, after a few broadsides, the ship on the bow perceived the error she had committed in getting stern aboard, and filled away with the intention of tacking athwart our bow, the ship on the quarter at the same moment falling off perfectly unimaginable, filled away in pursuit of the former and compelled him to put his helm up at about 100 yards distant, pouring several breaking broadsides into him. He made all sail before the wind, which did not think proper to reduce knowing his crippled situation, would enable us to overhaul him after securing his consort. War sound and ranged alongside, the latter when she hoisted a light and fired a gun to leeward, and upon being hailed to that effect replied she had surrendered. Sent a boat on board and took possession of His Majesty's ship, Cyan, Captain Gordon Falcon, mounting 34 guns, 32-pound carronades, having received her commander and officers on board with the greater part of her crew, ordered her to keep company and filled away in chase of the other gentlemen, and in short time discovered him on the weather bow, standing for us. In a few minutes, he luffed to the fire his broadsides, which was duly repaid. He then tacked ship and made all sail by the wind receiving a rake from our starboard broadside set the royals, and soon gained his wake, and opened upon him from the gun deck chase guns, with great effect, 
and in a few minutes, after she hoisted a light and hove to, ranged alongside, sent a boat on board and took possession of His Majesty's ship, Levant, Captain Douglas, of 1832-pound carronades and two long 12-pounders. The whole of his business occupied about three hours, only 45 minutes of which were taken up in compelling both ships to yield to our superior gunnery. The Cyan, when she struck, had five feet of water in the hold, and otherwise very much cut up. Her masts tottering, but nothing but the smoothness of the sea prevented them from going over the side. The Levant, in a condition somewhat better, her spars having generally escaped, but her hull pretty well drilled, and her deck a perfect slaughterhouse. In fact, so hardly had she been dealt with on deck that her men by the acknowledgement of their officers twice went below from their quarters. The Constitution lost not a spar, but the fore top gallant yard, and was in better order if possible to have fought a similar battle than when the late one commenced. The loss on the part of the two ships were upwards of 40 killed and nearly double that number wounded. The Constitution had four killed and 11 wounded. Two or three hours sufficed to place the three ships in a condition to make sail, and by four o'clock of the morning of Sunday, February 21st, they were standing to the westward. And that is from the words of the chaplain, A.Y. Humphreys. Okay, A.Y. Humphreys, I really hope you became records keeper for, if not the Navy, somewhere. Much better written. It did f flow much more beautifully, didn't it? It... Very good prose. I would read that book. All right, well, that concludes the capture of the HMS Cyan. While having an after-action report was cool, you can see how dry they really are. <laughs> well, maybe ship's chaplains are all gifted writers. Well, they have to be. They write their own sermons. Oh, good point. So let's move on to the East Coast. So we're going to go over the Chesapeake Bay Flotilla. So this flotilla was a collection of barges and gunboats that the U.S. assembled under the command of Joshua Barney. Their goal was to stall the British attacks on the Chesapeake Bay. They engaged the Royal Navy a number of times before Barney was forced to scuttle the vessels, after which the men served on shore in the defense of Washington and Baltimore. So on June 1st, in 1814, Barney's flotilla, led by Scorpion, were coming down the Chesapeake Bay. They encountered a 12-gun schooner, the HMS St. Lawrence, and also boats from the 74th gun, third rates, the HMS Dragon and the, and the HMS Albion, near the St. Jerome Creek. So Barney's flotilla pursued the St. Lawrence and the little boats until they reached the protection of the HMS Dragon and Albion, after which the flotilla went nope and retreated <laughs> into the Potoks River, which the British quickly blockaded. And now you've boxed yourself in. Well, I mean, Barney is outnumbered seven to one. Fair, I suppose. Yeah, but no winning that fight. So Barney 
retreats into St. Leonard's Creek while the British frigates, the HMS Lore and the HMS Narissus and the HMS Jasser blockades the mouth of the creek. Now, the creek is too shallow for the warships to enter. Remember our conversation earlier about the rivers? Mm-hmm. So they were, the flotilla was able to outgun and fend off the boats that the British launched after them. So this continued until June 10th. So they're being blockaded for nine days. Yeah, that's a pretty hefty time to be blocked up in a river if you're meant to be on the open ocean. Right. So the British get very, very frustrated. So they institute a, quote, campaign of terror. They lay waste to towns and farms by plundering and burning Calverton, Huntingtown, Prince Frederick, Benedict, and Lower Marlboro. So, 16 days after this, the U.S. Army sends Colonel Decius Wadsworth and Marines send Captain Samuel Miller to try to get Barney out of this blockade. So, all three of these guys mount a simultaneous attack from both the land and the sea on those frigates that are blockading the mouth of St. Leonard's Creek. Now, this did allow the flotilla to leave the creek and go upriver to Benedict, Maryland, but Barney had to scuttle 137 gunboats. Oof. So the British then abandons the creek and burned the town of St. Leonard, in Maryland. So the British bombard the flotilla with a number of cannons and actually Congrave rockets in an attempt to destroy it. So on August 19th, the flotilla nopes out again. <laughs> the plan was to transport the entire flotilla overland from the port of Queen Anne to the South River to return it to the bay. But they had concerns that the flotilla would fall into British hands. So the Secretary of the Navy, Jones, ordered Barney to take his squadrons as far up the Patunkus as possible and then scuttle the vessels if the British follows. So on the 22nd of August, the British shows up, and Barney orders its destruction, and then force-marched his men from the flotilla and grabbed as many cannons as he could from his boats. They took him to Washington, D.C., and that's when they joined the Battle of Bladensburg, which was a land battle, so that's where we'll leave that. So that's the uh, Chesapeake Bay Flotilla. Ah, uh, yes. The legend of the flotilla that kept sailing the other direction. Barney had a lot of nope times, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to hold it against him. That was a lot of good reasons to keep sailing opposite direction of the enemy. But at a certain point, you know, maybe you should try and stand your ground a little. Mm hmm. So 
now we are going to go on to the Raid of Alexandra. So, in the Chesapeake Bay, a naval force under Commodore James Alexander Gordon was ordered to sail up the Potomac River to attack Fort Washington. This raid was supposed to be a demonstration to distract the American troops from the main British attack on Washington. So, Gordon's force was the frigates Seahorse and Euralos. One had 38 guns, the other had 36. Hmm, okay. And he also had a few bomb vessels. The Devastation, the Etna, the Meteor. While appropriate names for what I think they're supposed to do, the heck is a bomb vessel? Well, they had two huge mortars and eight or eight to ten smaller guns and carronades. Okay, so a seaborne howitzer that has some defenses against, you know, naval attacks. But it's primarily meant to pick a spot in the bay and then, hey, you see that spot over there? I don't want to anymore. Yeah, I think you were thinking this was more a fire vessel. Or y- yes. You set your vessel on fire and send it into the enemy? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Set it on fire, fill it with explosives, you know, full sail, and hop overboard. If you're lucky enough to be able to do that. Somebody's still got to steer it. (laughs) Sail eternal, shiny and chrome. Now, they also had a rocket vessel, the Erebus. So, on August 20th, Gordon's ships spent several days working over the Kettle Bottom Shoals. He later said that all his ships grounded about 20 times. (laughs) Now, on August 27th, about seven days later, his bomb vessels opened fire on Fort Washington. The commander of this fort was Captain Samuel Dyson. He, He has orders from his major general to demolish the fort only if attacked by large numbers of troops. He also has about 500 militia to defend this fort. But as soon as Gordon opens fire, Dyson spikes his own guns and blows the fort up. Yeah, he got fired. I I, I was going to say, I'm noticing a lot of, you know, oh no, those folks have guns and they're marching in my direction. That sounds dangerous. I must retreat. Wait, aren't you charged with protecting the nation's capital? Yes, but they might hurt me. Yeah, he was not a good person to have in command of that fort. Uh Uh-oh, that looks... Okay, guys, we're out. (laughs) Oh, I I can't help but think of that hilarious Monty Python sketch of, hello, I'd like to get out to the army. Why? Are you a pacifist? No, sir, I'm a coward. There's men out there with guns and tanks, the real ones. So the last one we're going to cover for today is going to be the Battle of Hampton. And this will be it for for the East Coast. Alrighty. So a British squadron leaves the base at Halifax on August 26th. And they move to capture the coastal town of Machias. This force has the HMS Dragon, the HMS Edimon, the HMS 
Ochant, the HM Sloop. Syphilis. No, it's not syphilis. All the sailors <laughs> had syphilis, but this was not called the syphilis. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, here's the plan. We're going to go to America. Now, they call it the Land of Liberty. They may not have Lady Liberty yet, but we will find Lady Liberty. And we'll give them the syphilis. Jolly good. The HM Sloop, Sylph, which is a tender. They also have 10 transports carrying about 3,000 British regulars. That's a lot of redcoats. That is a lot of redcoats. Now, the intention of this expedition was to reestablish British control to Maine, which is east of the Penobscot River, an area that the British had renamed New Ireland, which is funny because the British don't like the Irish. <laughs> and they were also needing to open a line of communication between Halifax and Quebec. Now, carving off New Ireland from New England had actually been a goal that the British government had since the British Brigadier General Francis McLean conquered Maine during the American Revolution. So this was long planned. We have found the real cause of the War of 1812, folks. New Ireland. So while they were underway, they picked up the HM Sloop Rifleman and learned that the USS Adams was undergoing repairs at Hampton on the Penobscot River. So Shearbrook changed his plan and headed for Castine, which is the mouth of the Penobscot. So he rendezvous off Menasus Island and adds HMS Bulwark, HMS Tenedos, and HMS Peruvian, as well as the HM Schooner Pictou to his force. This huge force enters the cove at Castine on the 1st of September. And the local militia? Nope doubt. <laughs> the army spikes their four cannons, blows up their magazines, and withdraws north, dragging a couple of older field pieces. So, the first order of business that Sherbrooke and Griffin issues are proclamations assuring the people that if they shut the hell up, pursued only their affairs that they normally do, and gave them all their weapons, they would be protected as British subjects. <laughs> and the British would pay fair prices for all goods and services provided. Please do not resist. We are here to liberate you. Now, prepare to be liberated. Pretty much. So after this, Goslin crosses the bay with most of the 29th Infantry to occupy Belfast and to protect the left flank of a major operation which was going to be following them. Now, of course, the locals, they were like, your deal sounds good. Except for the 1,200 militiamen that decided to gather outside of Belfast 
to wait and watch. So Griffith assigned Captain Robert Barry to go after the Adams. So Barry proceeded up the Penobscot with the Dragon, the Sylph, and the Peruvian, and also a transport called the Harmony. They were taking that as a prize tender. They brought along 750 men drawn from the four participating regiments as, you know, backup. They also brought an artillery company and some Royal Marines. So Barry was one of the few British officers to acquire a loathsome reputation. No, I can't wait to hear about this one. Yeah, you'll find out here soon. So the captain of the Adams was Morris. He enters the river late in August and moves past Buckstown, which is now Bucksport, Maine, and anchors at the mouth of the Sawabas Cook stream in Hampton on the west bank of the Penobscot, some 30 miles inland. Now, he anticipated an attack. I mean, with that kind of force coming at you, who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. So he places nine of his guns ship on a nearby hill and 14 on the wharf because, you know, his crib is pretty much crippled. He was in there for repairs. So he had 150 crew and he decides to call for help from Brigadier General John Blake. So Blake sends him 550 militiamen. And they form a defensive line running along a ridge facing south towards Castine. Oh, so Lieutenant Lewis, the guy who doped out of there? Yeah. He shows up with his two dozen regulars and his two field pieces. So they gave him a carronade and he went and formed a line to the right or west and commanded the north-south road which he expected British attackers would take. So the evening of September 2nd, Barry landed a force at Baldhead Cove, which was three miles below Hampton and waited for morning. That morning was rainy and foggy. So the British move on Hampton. They were led by Lieutenant Colonel Henry John. So they meet with resistance at Pitcher's Brook, which was mostly Lewis. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Henry John was in command of these British soldiers and sent reinforcements as they stormed the bridge. Now, very quickly, the full force was in position to continue against the defensive line the Americans had put up. The sight of these redcoats, the absolute discipline, the bayonets that they had shined to a just reflective surface, this scared the hell out of the militia. So they nope out. Oh, what the hell, guys? They just run to the woods towards Banger. So... Morris spikes his guns and ignited a train leading to the Adams. The ship blows up 
before the British could stop it. And Lewis, seeing Morris spike his stuff and run away, Lewis does it too. I was going to say, not not the uh, most proud day in the U.S. Navy. Well, I mean, you have a ton of untrained militia versus, you know... A lot more very trained and well-drilled redcoats. Right. 750 regular redcoats. Plus an artillery regiment, plus Royal Marines. And you have 550 farmers with pitchforks. And Billy Joe Brown brought a musket. You had to share it, but he had a musket. It's no surprise that they broke instantly. So Morris makes it to Bangor. And then around September 9th, makes it to Portsmouth in New Hampshire. But to the Navy's credit, after two weeks of waiting for everybody to get back, every single sailor reported. Nice. Not one man went AWOL. So Barry takes 200 men to take control of Hampton, while he and a balanced force that he puts together, pursues the Americans towards Banger. Now, they don't find him, so they comes back and boards his ships. Mm-hmm. They sail into Banger at midday and called for unconditional submission. Not surrender, submission. Oh, that's... Oh. I mean, at least he's clear about what he wants. So provisions of quarters were turned over pretty quickly since the reputation of this guy was as a, quote, churlish, brutish monster. He threatened to let his men loose onto the town and burn it down if the town did not feed his men very, very quickly. So, Barry, he does not believe in liquor. He does not allow any of his men to have any. So he orders an officer destroy all the liquor in town. So once this happened, a wave of plundering starts. They destroyed six stores and about $6,000 worth of property. And that's 6000 in... Old-timey money, I assume. Yes. So, let me do some quick math real fast. Well, that's... I mean, that's not great, but that's not awful. That That's a little under 100k. That's quite a bit. I wouldn't want to look at uh, having to replace $100,000 worth of stuff. So, during the night, the British burned 14 vessels across the river in Brewer. Now... Before they could set fire to Banger's vessels, the town selectman made a deal with him because he feared that the burning would lead to conflagration. So he offered Barry $30,000 in a bond and agreed to build him four ships and deliver them to him in Castine. Barry accepted and he took a packet, four schooners, and a undescribed boat, and then left on the 4th. 
Now, he did parole 191 locals that were considered prisoners, and they estimated that the losses and damages completely to this night, or to this occupation, was $45,000. Okay, that, that's a bit worse. That's about half a million. Yeah, that's because he decided to terrorize the villagers, killing livestock of theirs for sport. Oh. Pretty much destroying whatever they wanted to. So did this guy face any sort of repercussions for his actions, or was it just, eh, it's war? We would have to do a deep dive into him to find out. I don't have any information on him at this time, but more than likely, no. Well, he sounds like a proper prick. Yeah. So, you know, the town committee tried to appeal to Barry to treat them with a little humanity. Would you like to know his reply? Oh, I'm going to hate this, aren't I? Go ahead. Quote, Humanity, I have none for you. My business is to burn, sink, and destroy. Your town is taken by storm. By the rules of war, we ought to lay your village in ashes and put its inhabitants to the sword. But I will spare your lives, though I mean to burn your houses. I, I know rules of engagement probably weren't any sort of pipe dream for anybody at this point. You know, Geneva Conventions don't exist. Nope. Going after civilian infrastructure, though, that is in no way assisting the overall tactical capabilities of the enemy nation, that's just a massive, you know, dick move. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Now, on the bright side, he did not follow through with that threat. Like, th this is a little middle-of-nowhere island off of Maine, right? It's not exactly the breadbasket of the American army. Certainly no titan of industry producing ships for the American Navy. These are folks who just want to be left the hell alone. Pretty much. Now, when he leaves, he goes down to Frankfurt, and he demands all their livestock and all of their arms and ammunition. Now, the locals complied, but he thought they moved slow. So he says he's going to come back and make them pay for its delay. Thankfully, he did not make good on this threat. We want Masterman back. Yes, at least he had class. So during this sacking, the British army lost one man killed. One officer, seven enlisted, wounded, and one MIA. Now, the Navy, Royal Navy reported the... HMS Dragon had one man killed. Mm -hmm. Now, the Americans, actually, their casualties were actually low. At one militiaman killed, 11 wounded, and two civilians killed, which were reportedly an accident. But, I mean, ugh. Yeah, it's a little hard to believe that it was an accident considering his track record. And they also captured 84 Americans. Uh, for what? Moving too slow? Well, I mean, there was a defensive force that they looked at before running. 
But these casualties are reported by Williamson, which he's on the American side. Barry, he gives no formal estimate. He says he saw upwards of 30 men lying wounded in the woods. And Lieutenant Colonel John says, well, I have no correct number, but Mm -hmm. it looked like about 30 to 40 wounded or missing. Now, getting these numbers is harder because the militia could not confirm how many men they actually brought to the fight. They didn't know how many men they actually had. So, Sherbrooke declared New Ireland a province of British North America and left General Goslin in Castine to govern it. So, for eight months, the Penbascot River was essentially an international boundary. Hampton and Banger were on the wrong side. The American side is the wrong side. Was probably why they had a little bit of a rougher treatment. Well, let's face it, a lot of rougher treatment. Right. So once the Treaty of Ghent was signed, the British claim to Maine was effectively gone. So they were forced to evacuate Castine on April 25th. In 1815. And I'm assuming those locals didn't receive any sort of compensation or even a half-hearted apology. No, and actually the wooded portion of Maine and Canada would actually be a disputed border until 1842. So they just caused a huge amount of problems. So the humiliation of this memory that the eastern Maine population felt. Mm-hmm. Of course, very anti-British. So it would contribute to the post-war movement for their statehood because Massachusetts failed to protect them. Yeah, that's understandable. And it also caused them to build a huge, expensive granite fort at the mouth of the Penobscot River in the 1840s. Now, General Blake and Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Grant and Major Joshua Chamberlain were court-martialed in Bangor in 1816 in their part of the defeat. Blake and Chamberlain were exonerated, but Grant was cashiered. Now, what does that mean? It means that he was not allowed to be a militia officer anymore. See, Blake was court-martialed first and he was cleared of charges, but he brought charges against the other two, probably to try to clear his name from this disastrous defeat. Right. Grant was found guilty of actions unbecoming an officer before the enemy. One report that they received was that he ran from battle and changed out of his uniform into civilian clothing before eventually being captured and identified. <laughs> That's, yeah, don't do that. I can only imagine he was wearing a bonnet and a dress. <laughs> oh, no, I haven't seen any Officer Grant. No, no, he, he's over in the barn. Ma'am, do you? Do you have a beard that looks so much like Grant's? No, it's my cat. Yeah, so 
That's it for the East Coast. I, not the best showing for the U.S. Navy. Not the best uh, conduct on the part of the British either. So that is where we're going to leave it today. It's going to be a little bit of a longer episode, but I also didn't want to leave all this uncovered just to do one or one half of one for the next time. Right. Eh, long episodes happen sometimes. Yeah. Do you know why, back in the day, the Navy preferred non-swimmers? Oh, you can't jump overboard if you don't know how to swim. Right, they defend their ship with a lot more enthusiasm. Fortunately, I know a workaround. You throw an empty barrel overboard and hop on that. We'll try that out. Let's, we're going to put you in a barrel and throw you overboard and see what happens. Oh, no, 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 not, not in the barrel. You just oh, throw no, it overboard no. and hold we, on to it. That's what we're going to do now. You put this challenge out there, we're going to do this. Thank you guys for joining us on the U.S. Navy History Podcast. You can reach us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com or you can you can tweet at us at usnhistorypod. Any last words before we seal this cask and toss uh, you overboard? Uh, li li listen, guys, um, I, I wish this on you, but please wish it on me as well. The fair winds and following sea. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>